Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome back to Series 7 of Helpful Social Work. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry. And in this series, we're going back to some of the central elements of social work practice and thinking about how we use our whole self when we practice social work. So each podcast, we're looking at an element of our physical practice and exploring what goes into that area, loosely based on our human senses. Um, but as we go through the series, we'll talk more about that. So we've so far covered listening and speaking, observation and touch. And today we're going to be talking about taste and smell. And we've put those together because they are really entwined, although they are separate senses and they receive information through different mechanisms. So we're coming up to 150,000 downloads, Jay. I just think that's amazing. Even for six and a half series, that that's just an amazing thing, isn't it? And it's um, yeah. Do you remember when we started and we said if 50 people listened, that would be more people listening than we can get in a room? Yeah. This was, you know, before COVID. Yeah. When you used to get people in a room to to talk about social work. Yeah. Um, But yes, uh, last 30 days we had 3,456 listens, which is a really nice number of 3456. So thank you <laughs> to the last person who made that possible. Um, yeah. We came in with that six at the end there. Um, and please do keep sharing the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you very much, guys. It's it's a re- it's really, it's such a privilege to be able to talk about social work um, and to feel like, you know, there are other people out there thinking, think about it with us, which is just lovely. Um, so as Jerry said, today we're going to be thinking about taste and smell. Um, and so we thought we'd start with some definitions. And when we think about taste, it's to distinguish flavours in the mouth. So it's very specific, isn't it? Right right there in the mouth. Um, and smell is to perceive by the sense of smell. Um I don't know how much that tells me actually, Jerry. I don't, I don't, I, but anyway, yes. Um, but think about things that you can say, like an experience that left a bad taste in my mouth, to have a taste for something, to have good or bad taste, to smell trouble ahead. Oh, this situation smells fishy. So, you know, we, you know, they're quite powerful um, informers, basically, our, our sense of smell and taste. And we've, we know that um, those memories that they leave uh, really give us information. So yeah, the word, I think that's really interesting, yeah. isn't it? That's quite specific definitions, but then we're actually the way that we use them. Yeah. Because what 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 gives meaning is is use of words, isn't it? The yeah. way that we use them is a, is a really all encompassing emotional way. Yes. You know, taste and smell have this powerful effect on us. Um, and again, we should probably say, as we uh, I think we we mentioned this in previous podcasts, that not everyone has sense of smell or sense of taste Mm. um, and those do really vary Uh, so we're going to be talking generally to some extent but just with that recognition that it's it's different for different people and of course the other thing to then to mention there Jerry is that COVID actually taught us a lot about this as well didn't it because people talked about losing their sense of taste losing their sense of smell during COVID as one of the um, symptoms that that really um, discombobulated people was one of the things that was they found quite stressful or very noticeable. Yeah. yeah. So I started off by thinking about what taste and smell kind of evoke for me in terms of social work practice. 
Um, and the two things that spring to mind, it might be similar for you, Joe. The first one is being offered cups of tea. So I did most of my direct practice in Yorkshire. Um, tea's pretty important there. Um, and you find out a lot about about a person, their identity, their uh, their situation, their experience, mm. their history almost from from the experience of, of tea. Um, and there's also a whole practice um, question or a whole practice area around the decisions about whether and how to drink tea if someone offers it to you um, mm. because of the potential um, complications of the person making the tea or what the tea is going to be like and that kind of thing. Uh, so that's one of the things that sprang to mind. And the other was about going into new environments and what your sense of smell told you about that environment. I mean, one, again, one of the things that's really striking is, for example, going into a, a residential care home. Does that smell like a home? Does it smell like a hospital? You know, what, how does that feel? Um, and in a lot of ways, that that sort of the smells that come to you signal the priorities of the home. Mm. Um, the Care Quality Commission um, did a kind of social media thing years ago, probably 10 years ago, where they said, um, you know, what does what's good care? You know, what, how, what would you use as, a, as an indicator of good care? And one of the things that I thought of was, does, does the care place smell mm. good? Does it taste good? Um, mm. you know, and what, what does that mean? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I had similar things. Definitely the cup of tea. I think that the drink and the food, um, you know, being being a larger person, uh, part of relationship building that people do with me is they nearly always offer me food as well, which is, I don't know. <laughs> so I get, I get a lot of bickies and cakes offered to me. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and they do tell you things. Um, but when I, I sat I sat with this, Jerry, like when I was thinking about, you know, that question, what do taste and smell evoke for me in practice? I thought that was a great question. And anyone out there listening, if you've got time to just sit with this question um, and it really started to strongly link into my emotional memories about practice. It was so strong. So, you know, smell is one of our preoccupying senses and it can really affect how we experience taste as well and interactions with people. And so some of the smells that I think about from my social work are not pleasant, actually, to be honest. Um, the first would be urine-soaked clothing that we can find on babies and children who are not getting all the care they need. Um, and then the next thing that I started thinking about, and every time I thought about these smells, I actually thought about a situation, like I was kind of moved back into the encounter, um, stale milk and rotting food, um, which can be found in homes where people are struggling to stay on top of everything. Uh, and then I thought, or indeed in my home this week, because I went away for four days and I didn't empty the food recycling bin before I went. And when I came back, my kitchen reeked of onions. It was just like <laughs> I walked back into the house and went, oh, you know, I knew immediately that 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 had um, that I'd missed a trick. Um, poor hygiene smells can really dominate, particularly with people who are trying to find shelter or manage to care for themselves. So that kind of sitting alongside somebody um, who's who's struggling to find ways to keep themselves clean or struggling to find the motivation um, and all these smells kind of tell me very early on 
that something's happening for the people I'm working with that's keeping them from doing all of the self and environmental and childcare things that they would otherwise probably want to do. Um, and as I said, you know, these smells just took me straight back to the to the individual person that I'd worked with. And it actually started making me feel really sad and frustrated. And so what I realized was that tapping into this sense is really powerful in stimulating memories. And so I thought, okay, I've got to do some correctives. I've got to think about good smells in practice. Um, but they were often in the same places, but where I deemed the helpfulness to have been successful. So this is the kind of stuff I was thinking of. More smell of soap, washing powders, shampoos, toothpaste, furniture polish, fresh air, no damp or less damp, carpets not smelling mouldy, those kinds of things. And I and I started thinking, I'm I'm coming over all Martha Stewart, you know, thinking about this. But humans must be attracted to these smells or there wouldn't be this huge industry around it. So I kind of associate the smells myself with more care and more ability to have control over your environment and yourself. So something about self-empowerment was, was kind of where those smells came for me. Um, and, and I don't want you to think that I walk around, you know, judging people's homes or judging people and running a glove over their furniture. It, it, it's just there's something calming about the smells that I started to think about when I was thinking about pleasant smells. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's not about I think we also need we, well, first thing is we need to be careful about the difference between judgment and judgmental. Mm. Um, and I think we'll get into this in a bit, but social workers are using all their senses to mm. weigh up and evaluate and judge a situation that doesn't mean being judgmental um, and there's lots you know, there's lots of range in what you're talking about um, but I think that the fundamental there is the choice that the person has about the environment around them and how mm. they themselves present um, of course that's really striking for say a baby or a child or a um, an older person who might be living with dementia where other people are, are needing to support um, what that environment is like um, and yeah. make some decisions potentially about about that but I think the the fundamental there around um, understanding what someone would choose um, and giving them options mm. um, and some of the things that you talked about as striking you as, as worrisome are kind of smells that happen because because there's no action mm. um, and what we need to understand is whether they're the person actually wanted there to have been action and yes. wasn't able to do it um, mm. and that there is an issue around habituation as well around smell that things that we would notice initially we might start to not notice and so there's an, you know that's another worrisome thing isn't there that this could potentially be something that the person has stopped yeah stop noticing yeah yeah yeah, yeah and there's lots of health issues, aren't there? I mean, there's some again thinking about the work that I've done in multidisciplinary teams with health um, colleagues. You know, some of the the things that people would be worrying about would be lots of cigarette smoke, for example, mm. because it's harmful as well yeah. as actually it can it can leave a, a smell that can, can be unpleasant. You know, so mm. um, animals and potentially kind of environmental health issues and things like that. Yeah, you know, these are things that we we do need to think about. Um, and ask the questions. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I like the idea of kind of, you know, um, understanding that that habituation to, you know, people do get used to the situations they're in, um, particularly if they don't feel they have any power to change them, you know, and also too, and I've worked in the disability field as well. Um, it can be very, very hard to offer someone all the care that that we might want to offer them as well, particularly as they become adults. Um, I was thinking particularly of teeth. Teeth can be a really tricky thing um, to care for successfully for for people who don't ex don't experience it as as something that's safe for them or that feels okay for them. So yeah. So I found a really interesting article. Um, I always like to have a look and see if there's research that reflects some of the things we're thinking about mm -hmm. uh, um, and that might point to some things that we, we wouldn't have kind of drawn on from stuff we've learned or experiences. So I found a article about home visits and social work, which is called From Disembodiment to Embodied Presence. And that's by Amit Muzikant and Ainak Peled uh, in the British Journal of Social Work in 2018. And it's about it's based on 15 interviews with social workers in Israel. And what it's talking about is how we talk about our bodies um, and the fact that we're physically present in a home visit and other people are physically present as well. And, and it's really about the use of senses. Um, and it starts off by saying from the literature that literature on bodily aspects of home visits is quite limited uh, and suggests that social workers can be overwhelmed or intimidated by sensory information. And so mm. we try to handle that in a professional manner, which means that essentially we talk a lot about what we see and what we hear and not so much about what we touch or taste or smell, mm. uh, which I found really interesting. Um, uh, you know, there, there has been countering research and um, advocacy for seeing the fact that we're physically present and other, you know, it's a human encounter as a real unique opportunity to gather sensory information. So smells and flavours um, form part of the social evidence um, and we've talked about how he Ferguson's work before around observation um, mm. and you know, his his argument um, cited in this article is that it's the profound sensory experiences that we have in home visits that really allow professional judgment and insight um, and, and then the ability to really make a proper contribution to someone's life rather than kind of I guess skating over it I feel like there's a sort of surface approach and then there's this deeper approach where you're actually really meshed and involved mm. um yeah and i think that for me the thing about that, that 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 made me think about i just loved this article actually i thought it was really great um and and gave us yeah i thought the the fact that you know from from a western point of view there was a real disembodiment notion you know that the mind is superior and the body kind of is separate from that but actually what we're talking about here is is using and taking all the information in that in that kind of you know whole person encounter but i think that you've got to 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 do that well you have to be aware of it you have to be able to understand it because what I was experiencing when I was thinking about this whole area was a kind of realization that I took huge amounts of information from taste and smell but that I hadn't spent enough time reflecting about it or or thinking about it 
Um, and so, yes, you're right. Thinking about um, food and drink offered, I think that's something that we do think about and we talk about. And smells, I think that we we notice, but I don't know that we, we often talk about it enough. Um, and particularly what smells are okay and what and what aren't. And that's why I kind of listed the smells that are okay for me because I thought, okay, well, that's interesting, isn't it? They're smells that trigger things in my head, but what about what triggers in other people's heads? And what about a different, you know, um, different cultural differences around cooking or um, the variety or diversity of smells, you know, like people who like um, those incense sticks burn, you know, the, yeah. the those kind of smells. I don't really like those kind of smells, but yeah. there's my and some of the things them. you talked about, like polish, might be overwhelming for some people. Um, exactly. Yeah. What about people who um, are allergic to fragrance? You know, that would be like their, <laughs> their worst nightmare. And, um, you know, cooking smells can mean care to some and the need for fresh air to others. And so for me, what I started thinking was, yeah, we need to kind of bring this we're taking in all this information, but when we think about reflection and supervision and writing and using it and, and using this information well, we need to bring it into those environments um, and talk about it well mm -hmm. so that we can start to understand that subliminal information we're taking in that we might be basing judgments on that we might not, might not really even necessarily be noticing. Yeah, and the authors notice in this article that the interviewees, the social workers, were often really uncomfortable talking about smells. Mm. And so they were they were drawing on that information without necessarily acknowledging it. Yeah. Uh, and they, the, the authors suggested some reasons uh, which I think are really helpful in thinking about why we struggle to talk about smells, for example, things like dirt or body waste. Um, mm. So the first thing is that there's a taboo element about talking about bodily matters in a lot of societies. Um, and so there's a kind of shame attached to that. Yeah. Um, and we worry not only about talking about it ourselves, but also the potential shame that then gets attached to the person that we're talking about. Mm. Um, when we when we could comment or talk about or notice difference in smells, um, where there's a worry about othering people. Mm. Or potentially stereotyping people, kind of saying, "Well, this is this is normal for this person um, because blah." Yeah. So being that confusion again about judgment and being judgmental. Yeah. And yeah. Meaning making without really without making meaning correctly. So. Mm. Um, and then there also is going back to this um, this idea that I mentioned before about social work trying to be professional and move away from the idea that we're kind of hands on and in there. Um, and being trying to be too medical in a way about it, um, mm. and that's that's because in certainly in, in this society in the UK, uh, there's a distinction made between kind of dirty work, which is yeah. often seen as sort of women's work, looking after people, nursing people who are sick, caring for babies, those kind of things, um, and then professional work, which is done in a nice clean environment, in nice clean clothes, and you drive mm. to and from it in a nice clean car. So those those sort of um, you know, long standing assumptions still affect. Yeah. Um, or potentially still affect. So these are hypotheses, aren't they, that we, yeah. we might worry about it because of shame, because about this issue of potentially othering and also because of this undervaluing of 
um, what's seen as dirty work or kind of hands-on human work. Mm. And it's so it's so it's so important to think about these things and and just to and then if you uh, like for me when you were talking then that just took me back to thinking about my mother who who um you know had a long battle with cancer and and eventually died of it and when she was in the hospital which she was for a long time most of 18 months one of the things that i used to do with her was help bath her um, which I really struggled with in the beginning, actually, because I was I was shy of it, because I was I was shy of handling her intimately and and that kind of thing. It felt it felt wrong, I guess. But at, towards the end, because she loved it so much, because it gave her relief, you know, um, it became a really precious thing. And I think there is something about us as social workers challenging the idea that working alongside people and caring for people and offering them offering them and their bodies and their space and everything respect is is you know is lesser work it's it's not lesser work is it? it's you know no, it's, it's human it's work. fundamentally vital yeah. work and it's yeah. and social work is is part of that family of work isn't it Mm. Um, you not only do social workers do hands-on you know, offer hands-on support mm. um, but we also are intimately engaged with people in their private spaces yeah um, and in their private matters and so trying to kind of float through this as a disembodied mind kind of looking yeah. down on it and analyzing it is it's, yeah. it's not only hopeless but it's also profoundly unethical yeah and it's just about being able to have these conversations well without evoking shame is really important, isn't it? Because it's like what you were saying about us needing to understand how the other person's viewing the, their environment and themselves and the, and, and the smells and the taste and everything that they're encountering and trying to kind of have those conversations um, just instead of just taking taking a, a, an image away and then and then processing that. So thinking about how we can when we notice things how we can be transparent and open about the fact that we've noticed it yeah, I think one of the um, things that maybe holds us back is is particularly when something we notice evokes a personal experience or disgust um, Jerry I think I think we can't ignore you know shame is often evoked by another person's disgust and um, there was a really interesting study done, which I now wish that I'd taken the time to look at more um, on looking at micro faces of different professions to neglect. And I'm fairly sure that it was done at the University of Kent and the name of the simulation was Rosie. Um, and they looked at the micro expressions that people were registering when they were looking at this story of neglect. And one of the things that was really interesting was that social workers often registered disgust. Wow. So that's that, that, as you know, so some of the other professions registered sadness or um, distress, things like that. But um, some of the social workers, micro expressions were discussed. Um, I think that is linked to fear, isn't it? And maybe yeah. that's linked then to an understanding of what that situation can lead to. 
yeah. um, or how that situation can arise. Um, and the, yeah, I, who, who knows? I mean, I'm just I'm just hypothesising here, but I think I think those things are all bound up together, aren't they? Um, and, so and there might be particularly particular sadness yeah. or or reaction if if it's a situation that you've kind of come across before, or if it's something that, that speaks to your personal experience as well. Um, I remember, you know, I used to find going into homes of um, of older Polish people in Sheffield particularly profound because my grandfather's Polish, um, but I never met him. So I would be kind of thinking, oh, this is what it might have been like, you know, with the kind of the artifacts and the smells and the, mm. um, the tastes if that if my grandfather had had, had lived uh, so so there, those things as well you know if I, I i can imagine that in a situation where there was maybe self-neglect or um an overwhelmed situation in in a in a family like that it might have profoundly more profoundly affected me because i would be thinking about the echoes of my own cultural situation so there's all of that bound up isn't it which is why again you're going back to this article the authors really recommend that we have spaces to talk through this yeah. against it always it often goes back to supervision with us doesn't it it does but also and also targeted learning and training and listening to podcasts like this and then having conversations about them afterwards because for me like I said this series of podcasts has been a really learning series for me because there are elements of my encounters which I probably haven't brought to the fore as strongly as others and and it's made me realize that and I think that's you know for social workers as we kind of think about and realize these things then we can start to think about well then how do we how do we actually use this information ethically you know how are we humane how are we just how how do we act with integrity around um having that that bodily experience and taking and how do we, you know, talk transparently um, and fairly about what we notice with the people we're noticing it about in a way that doesn't evoke shame? And advocate which is, for which them is as what well we're always because, trying to do. And yeah. yeah, it may really be limiting their options for engagement with other people as well. Yeah. Well, you know that razor blades are one of the most shoplifted things. Did you know that? I didn't. Yeah, razor blades. Expensive. And and important. They hypothesise that it's because, yeah, people people actually want to um, use the razor blades for for um, more than just using them for for you know drugs and things like that. They're using them to try to keep themselves clean, use them for job interviews, things like this, you know. Um, and we know you think about it. If you're a homeless person trying to get a job and a home. And trying to be clean enough and present well enough to actually do that successfully. These are all some of the real challenges that people are negotiating and living with all the time. And as well as the individual aspect of this, there is a, a sort of social and political aspect, yeah, isn't there? Um, you know, what do we notice and what does it tell us about people's life chances and opportunities and the stress and pressures on them? So when mm. I was when we were putting this together, I was thinking about noticing damp, for example, yeah. which is often smelly and oppressive um, but mm. you've actually just made me think about period poverty there's been a lot of work done in the UK to to make um, like period um, 
resources, I guess, free for people mm. and have things in schools and in um, public places. And once again, having those conversations as a social worker, um, is, that's tricky, isn't it? Um, to actually sit down and have those conversations with somebody, but um, they're really, really important. And that that idea of the damp, Jerry, that's not something I encountered as much in Australia, although we often had um, perhaps more um, the carpets might have been in really poor condition. But when I came up here and I was working in Cumbria, um, I, I was shocked by the extent of the damp in some of the houses and, and how people were managing with that. Um, and, you know, the other thing is kind of properties can have all really can have all sorts of really strong smells associated with them that, as you say, people just get habituated to because they don't have the power to make it different. You know, poor sewage, for example, poor draining showers. Um, yeah. So we and we need to be thinking the whole time. How can we be? understanding our communities and our patches and how can we be advocating for better facilities, better resources. And we're talking about home resources there, but actually I've been in some pretty tricky schools in terms of, um, you know, their um, the quality of their flooring or, or the way their windows are shutting or not shutting or their heating and those kind of things. Um, also community centres, so places where, you know, all the buildings are becoming impoverished and not being cared for enough. And I think, yeah, as a social worker, all of this contributes and all of those things have a smell and a taste about them, don't they? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, we definitely recommend taking a look at the Basra Anti-Poverty Practice Guide. Um, it's, you know, as you say, it's it's about individual practice and also that engagement with communities um, and advocacy at a, at a much bigger scale. Um, but I think the other kind of big thing is um, supporting social workers, with, you know, supporting each other with the impact of this work and, and mm. helping us be able as a profession to go out, you know, um, with open minds and open hearts into these situations mm. and to process that information and keep engaging. Um, yeah, and and to use our language well. This is the other thing that we need to be thinking about, which is if we're trying to, particularly I was thinking about safeguarding again here, you know, if we're trying to convey a sense of risk um, or a lack of resources somebody's experiencing, we need to be really clear, don't we, about what we're saying there um, and use that really straightforward language. Or the other thing, um, the graded care profile is a very good tool for helping us think about how to have discussions and how to use language well um, around neglect because often um, we can kind of use this kind of big encompassing um, thing, poor home conditions. And it doesn't actually tell you anything because it, it, that's very subjective, actually being able to describe exactly what it is. Um, and there's this nice um, example here from the ambulance service, which talks about unsanitary with a foul smell and a fire hazard. 
um, you know, and and if they'd gone a bit further and said with a smell coming from and a fire hazard around, you know, um, the more the more kind of descriptive you can be without writing a book, the more helpful it is for other people to understand what it is that you're worried about, but also for the child and family or the older person to understand and then have a rebuttal conversation about that if they need to. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about um, people who hoard um, and who are really valuing what they're doing. Um, and so you kind of dismissing it as a fire hazard can get really tricky, can't it? So um, being able to have those conversations with clear language, I think, I think is, is really helpful. Yeah, and that will require a relationship, won't it? Because to be able to talk openly and clearly about um, about aspects of someone's personal life, things that are profoundly mm. personal, mm. Um, the, you know, the sensitivity required requires a relationship. Um, and what we absolutely want to avoid, I think, is is that writing about someone without t- talking to them about it. Yes. People shouldn't read anything about themselves that we haven't conversed with them first. I think I think that's I'm working with someone at the moment who is going through all of their docu, all of the documents that were made about them. And it's quite difficult to see them trying to make sense of everything and why things have been said about them and. And, and what people even mean sometimes and stuff that they've never heard anyone. I've, I've never said they've never said that to me. They never said that to me, that kind of feeling as well. And so I think there is something about it comes back to having you've got to be, have real courage in practice, haven't you? Courage and compassion, because you have to be able to notice those smells and tastes. Understand what they mean to you and really ask yourself, is this my trigger? Or is this something that belongs to the other person that I need to be concerned about? Because that's the other thing, too, of course. You know, smells are evoking things about our our journey as well as about the other person. So you've got to be really clear about them and explore what they mean and respond to them without evoking shame um, in the person or shutting them down or making them feel wrong. And also, as you say, the whole time thinking about that wider context of what what is within the person's power and what is without the person's power and what matters to them. It, yeah. It's very complex work. It is. I think with, all, with this whole series, every time we started to talk about something, you know, it sort of peels away all the layers of, of mm. practice that are needed, um, the depth of it. Um, and I, one of the things that I find really helpful to keep going back to is this question of why. Um, so we're not just noticing things and it's not just the what it's the the why of that is what matters you know mm. what's the meaning behind it yeah um, what does it mean for for me for the person that I'm talking to for other people around them and that's the conversation to be having the conversation about about the why mm. um and and hopefully from that you can find again like you say what matters but also how to um how to navigate a path through that to something that 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 works for the person mm. and when I think about this all Jerry I just think about what privileged work this is you know that it's it's very difficult work but it's work that requires you to use your whole self honestly and authentically 
um, and courageously. And to do that, that means that the systems around you and the support around you has to also be robust and fair and ethical. And so for me, one of the things as we're talking to everybody out there is that, you know, you have to find ways to surround yourself with strong mentors and allies who value the work the way that you do so that you can have that support to do it because it's very demanding um, and when it's done properly, it's, it is so powerful, but it has to be done from the right place with the right support around you, as well as you looking at the right support for the other person. So, you know, I'd love to know how many people out there are thinking about and talking about and processing smells and tastes as part of their reflective conversations, because I hand on heart, I can say, I don't think I ever have. Done it would that make consciously. a really interesting topic for a, a master's dissertation or something like that if anyone's thinking about yeah what they might do that on yeah well thank you Jerry I think I think I hope everyone has found this as as um, thought provoking as we have <laughs> or as I have um, it's uh it's you know social work is human work and part of being a human is all these experiences that all this information that we take in that we don't even realise we're taking in, that we're filtering and managing all the time. 